All right, welcome to another episode of The Intellectuals. Our guest today is Professor Jason D. Hill from DePaul University. But before we uh, introduce Professor Hill, I want to first thank CD Media and Todd Wood for providing this platform for the Intellectual Series. And our producer for the program, retired Navy Captain Brent Ramsey. I'm Ron Scott. I'm the host for The Intellectuals. Uh, a co-founder of a new nonprofit called Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services. You can learn more about STARS at www.stars.us, and that's STARS with two R's. So Professor Hill is a uh, honors distinguished faculty member at DePaul University in Chicago. He is a professor of philosophy and the author of five books. Two in particular include, What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Depression. And the best-selling, We Have Overcome, An Immigrant's Letter to the American People. He holds a PhD in philosophy and has been a professional writer and book author for over 30 years. He is a specialist in ethics, political philosophy, moral psychology, American politics, and foreign policy. He has been published in major magazines, including The Federalist, The American Mind, The American Thinker, Commentary Magazine, Spiked Magazine, and Salon. He is also a contributor to The Hill. He's also a poet, and his poetry has been published in several journals. Jason Hill has lectured and taught extensively on the subject in the United States, Europe, and Asia. From 2010 to 2012, a consortium of four universities in England held a series of conferences devoted to Dr. Hill's post-human cosmopolitanism and adopted the moral vision contained therein as part of their mission statements. Jason came to the United States at the age of 20 from Jamaica and has thrived beyond his wildest dreams. Welcome to our program, Professor Hill. Thank you so, thank you so much for having me. You bet. Let me just start <laughs> off by asking you to share with our viewers, you're coming to America at the age of 20 and your journey since and how it has shaped who you are and where you are today. Well, that's right. I came to America in 1985 at the age of 20 after having fallen in love with America since I was a child actually about the age of seven or eight, I just remember thinking that my destiny laid in America and I wanted to be here and um, had been reading American history very early on. And knowing that, I think God had a plan for me to be here and I uh, got here at 20 and um, with the help of my, my family, my, my mother had sponsored us and my brother and I had our green cards and we all came and um, I didn't start college until I was 22. I had a, a terrible struggle putting, I had to put myself through school. I worked up to 45 hours a week and went to school full time and graduated magna cum laude at the top of my class and um, did not in any way seek government help at all. And then subsequently won a scholarship to do my PhD at Purdue University um, in Lafayette. And I did my PhD in four years. I was very focused on what I wanted to do. And, um, published my first three books um, quite early on and achieved tenure in a full professorship in my 
in my mid forties and um, then started turning more. I really came to America to be a public intellectual and not just some sort of obscure esoteric academic. Um, and then in my, I started writing for major magazines and becoming a columnist for front page magazine and, and for the Hill and other, and other magazines. I really wanted in my work to put an end to what I think is, I call America phobia, a growing hatred of this unprecedented, amazing Republic of ours. I'm a great patriot of this country. I've, I've been to about 45 countries in the world. Um, mostly because of my work and my lecturing. And I, I find that there, there are no other people such as the American people who are really an exceptional people. And there is no other nation or country quite like America. This is an unprecedented civilization. It's not just a culture, it's a civilization. And so in my writing, what I'm trying to do is to rescue, uh, first of all, I'm trying to inoculate um, individuals against the Americophobia that the far left, I think, is really um, inflicting and the sort of dangerous ideopathogens that are infecting our country, like critical race theory and um, and the diversity, equity, inclusion, the woke supremacists, and all kinds of nefarious movements that are seeking to replace the political DNA of this country and usher in what I think is a socialist, Marxist, communist um, regime. So I think I have my work cut out for me. But first and foremost, what has always guided me is my deep and abiding love for this amazing country, which I'm profoundly in love with. Well, Professor Hill, you are certainly an important voice today in America and it's badly needed. Uh, before I get to your book, which <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed reading, uh, Thank you. two words that really define the quality of your work, precision, and parsimonious language. You, a sentence is very, very potent. And oftentimes I would read a sentence and digest it because it really contained uh, concepts and logic that is not ordinary in ordinary writing. Uh, you and Frederick A. Hayek uh, are very similar in that regard. Thank you. Uh, but before I get to your book, Professor Hill, uh, I want to ask you about an essay that you published recently. The title was The Moral Meaning of America, Two Parallel Narratives. You make a, a bold statement in the essay, quote, this is America, where a third founding taking Lincoln's promise at Gettysburg in the Civil War was the second, was achieved in the Civil Rights Movement and the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The inclusive promise of we the people was finally delivered to all people in this country. The formal debt owed to black people for centuries of enslavement and inexcusable mistreatment and exclusion from American society was finally paid. That's a very powerful statement. Mm -hmm. uh, can you explain for our viewers what you mean by that statement and why there is so much racial angst these days? Well, I think the the 64 Civil Rights Act, which in my book I call not just a, a, an act that brought blacks within the domain of full domain of the ethical and the full domain of the human pantheon of the human community, and granted them full legal standing before the law. And in one sense, it ended the official ideology of white supremacy. It did not it, it eradicate it made racism illegal, 
And it was a eugenical moment in the history of this country where it told white people, you cannot use your private property um, as an extension of your living room, as an extension of yourself. It, it really was a violation of, of property rights. I argue rightfully so, given the collusion of the state and private individuals in producing races and keeping blacks outside the historical process and the pantheon of the human community. So I call it the third founding because it's the final installment on the plan that started in 1776, which was to grant, to recognize the inalienability and the inviolability of all God's creatures in this great Republic of ours. Blacks were not included in the original inception, although the, the, the crucibles of black freedom started in 1776, uh, in the formation of this country with the inalienability clause and the idea that all men are, are created equal uh, we would use those political vocabularies to to suffuse the 64 Civil Rights Act. So I, I regard this really as the last founding of America. There, there really, we, without transgressing on the rights of it, our citizens, there's nothing more, I argue, that the state can do for blacks. Official racism, I argue, controversially, has ended in this country. There are still racists. And there will always be stupid people, which is what racists are. They're psych, you know, a sort of psychotic way of looking at the world and at people. But you cannot eradicate, short of a blow to totalitarian state, you cannot eradicate uh, racist beliefs and racist people. The 1964 Civil Rights Act has already said, hold all the racist beliefs if you want. But if you translate those beliefs into action that discriminate in the, in the workforce, in the public sphere and the private sphere, you are committing a crime. And that's already a, a radical encroachment on the agency of, of individuals. So I think officially racism has ended in this country. Legal racism, official racism has ended in this country and systemic racism has ended in this country. Now, why is there so much racial angst? Um, I'm not sure that there is racial angst in the way that there was racial angst before. I think what has happened is that the far left has paint, has expropriated the agency of so many blacks and have painted a nefarious picture of white Americans as being no different than they were prior to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And one of the things that I argue in my book is that there was a, a moral revolution that occurred during the 60s, that the sensibilities of a great deal, probably the majority of white Americans did change that they came to see blacks as their equals. They came to see blacks as deserving of moral and ethical treatment. But we have a far left movement and, and, and regime and, and, and individuals who would paint white Americans as being intrinsically racist and bigoted, that racism is somehow um, part of our political DNA, that it's ineradicable and that and that blacks need a managerial class of liberals who will expropriate their agency and take care of them and continue to paint America as an intrinsically bigoted racist country in which there have been no moral improvements. So I think we see a sort of lingering angst taking place, Dr. Scott, in our, in our country because a lot of entitlement projects or an entitlement mentality 
has also in, in the form of the radical welfare state engineered by Lyndon Johnson in his great, great society program in the war on poverty, uh, in which I might add a lot of the agency of agencies of black people were taken away from them. Pe blacks who had nuclear families and were self-sustaining individuals and had compact families uh, that got destroyed by the welfare state. And we have a system in which blacks feel and other groups feel that they are entitled to a great many things that they have not earned, that they're entitled to the wealth of other people, that they're entitled to the products of the labor of other people. And so I think there is a great deal of animosity and angst that is being conjured by the far left, mostly I think by the far left, to keep the drama going. You see, I think a lot of people didn't know what to do with themselves after the latter part of the civil rights movement, when we had the affirmative actions program going, when blacks were progressing towards full inclusion in the, in the what I call the pantheon of the human community. These, these drama kings and queens had to keep stuff going and they had to create crises where there were no crises. In some areas there are crises in our educational system, which is disgraceful. But um, in terms of actual race relations, you know, uh, things, had things had been improving. But um, I think a lot of people have experienced a kind of existential crisis since um, when you're no longer a victim and when you're no longer, the average black person is really no longer oppressed. There are no signs saying colored people only or no segregated theaters and, and libraries. Um, people really don't know what to do with themselves. And so I think a lot of this angst is really manufactured to some degree. Well, which, which brings me to uh, <clears throat> another question. Um, I had mentioned in the introduction that between 2010 and 2012, <clears throat> a consortium of four universities in England held a series of conferences devoted to your post-human cosmopolitanism and adopted the moral vision contained therein as part of their mission statements. What does post-human cosmopolitanism mean and does it help to explain the current ideological divide and angst in America? Well, cosmopolitanism is a, is a concept that goes back to the ancient Greeks and the ancient Stoics, um, Roman Stoics. Uh, it's the idea that we are, it's different from globalism, I wanna say. It's, it's the idea that we're all citizens of the world in one respect, in the sense that we are all creatures of God and that we are um, we have duties ethical duties to each other as human beings um, it does not do away with the idea of the nation state it does not do away with the idea that our, we, we have obligations to our compatriots but it does convey the idea that our humanity and that's why I use the word post-humanity our humanity can be configured outside of just thinking of ourselves as citizens of members of a state that is, we can extend our sympathies. When I hear about a, a tornado or a hurricane or a monsoon that has destroyed some part of India or an egregious human rights violation happening in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia where people are beheaded or women are stoned to death, my sensibilities are offended and I feel an ethical obligation to speak out against it as a citizen of not just America, but of the world. So it's, it's meant to conjure up a, sense, a certain set of sensibilities that make us see ourselves as part of a larger humanity and to, and, and to, to end 
the divisiveness that exists among human beings where we use criteria such as race, nationality, ethnicity, um, or maybe even sexual orientation, uh, certainly religious uh, affiliation as ways of creating artificial barriers among human beings. Now, there are cases where there should be there should be divisiveness. I think that I would want to have a healthy set of um, confrontations with a communist because that is inimical and antipodal to the foundation of the United States of America. But post-human cosmopolitanism really says, look, when we look out at the world, it's a, it's a narcissism of minor differences that um, has often separated and created clashes among human beings and that we have a lot more in common than we have in differences. Um, so that's, and I articulated that philosophy in three, three books, um, three early books when I, I wrote in my 30s and my 40s um, to try to sort of get people to not get a, away from thinking about their ethnicity or their nationality, but to stop thinking about the world and judging people exclusively in those terms and to be more individualistic. I'm an intransigent, implacable individualist who likes to see, I'm an old fashioned conservative in that sense and I like to see people in terms of themselves as being individuals and not as collectives. Well, you know, this, this really reinforces uh, your commitment to moral foundationalism, moral universalism, and the absolutism of reason. Yes. Which, you know, coming to your most recent book, and the, the title is provocative, but I have to tell you, it, it does little justice to the, to the depth and the impact of what you write between the covers. Uh, what do white Americans owe black people racial justice in the age of post-oppression? It's a provocative title, but starting with chapter one, what exactly was, or who exactly was to blame? How the African made himself into a slave. Mm -hmm. And what, what really struck me in that chapter was the difference between European man and the sub-Saharan African man. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the notion of animism and versus spirituality, the the notion of conquest, but conquest for advancement, to transcend, uh, to fulfill the will of God as they understood it. Uh, so understanding that background really provides an important context that kind of shapes an understanding of of why there's so many misunderstandings and misconceptions about what we're dealing with today, which uh, you know, when we think about millions marched over the death of George Floyd, the message they were delivering could not be described as post-depression. Many lives were lost An estimated $2 billion in property damage was done to our cities across the land and more billions flowed into the coffers of the Black Lives Matter organization and the movement for Black Lives from corporate America and other places. If we are post-oppression, how do you explain that phenomenon? Well, we are, I, I, I'm going to maintain that we are post and living in a post-oppression age in the legal sense. That is, there, there are no Blacks today who are legally oppressed by the state. That is, the state does not create punitive laws that single out Blacks solely on the basis of race. 
and punish them. There are no miscegenation laws on the books today, for example. But I think what happens with the what happened with the George Floyd case was an a, an inc, a, an incident that was tragic, that was an unfortunate. But the media itself does not do a really fair job of reporting the facts. That is, I have a report here from the Justice Department that every year 10 million arrests are made by the police nationally. And in 2019, 14 unarmed blacks were killed and 25 unarmed whites were killed by the police. And the 2001 Justice Department report stated that when a white officer kills a felon, that felon is usually white. And when a black officer kills a felon, that felon is usually black, and nothing has changed since years then. Um, at the 2011 Bureau of Statistics, uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics showed that of all suspects killed by police from 2003 to 2009, 41%, 41.7% were white and 31%, 31.7% were black. And in this period, blacks accounted for 38.5% of all arrests for violent crimes. So in reality, more unarmed white men are actually killed by the police, but there is a selective reportage in the media. And um, the media would have us believe that law enforcement, and I'm a strong, uh, back the blue, I'm a strong defender in law enforcement as someone who thinks that our civilization and in and individual rights and property rights and all, all our rights cannot be upheld unless we have strong law enforcement um, institutions in place but there also is in the public imaginary i think this idea that police officers are part of a historical legacy in which they played a racist role in and there's a degree of truth in that, in, 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 in harming black people, in not protecting the rights of black people. That has changed when you look at the demographics of the police force. There are many, many blacks. We have a, a black police commissioner in New York, um, Hispanics. So I think, again, Black Lives Matter, which is a problematic movement, and the idea that somehow white police officers are out there systemically and systematically targeting black men like prey is first of all a myth because the statistics don't back that idea at all and the there is still a lingering mentality fostered i think again by the far left that black people are living in an era that is even worse than the Jim Crow era. Um, and part of this, I think, comes from the fact that the entitlement mentality that reigns supreme among too many in the Black community um, is unchallenged. And so what counts as oppression is anything that is not granted to blacks by the well in the form of a, a welfare state where my idea of freedom is a negative one that the state is not there to provide you with a job the state is there to make sure that laws are not created to arbitrarily obstruct your efforts to pursue a job the right to a job is not the right to a physical job it's a right to an action to pursue a job the right to and to 
to housing is not the right to an actual house. It's the right to pursue action it, to purchase a house. So it's rights are, are not rights to tangible objects. They're rights to, to actions to pursue our goals. And we have this idea that because there are disparities, Dr. Scott, between the races, that all these disparities are reducible to the residual effects of slavery or present slavery. And I challenge that in the book, as you know, I, I say that not all disparities between the races are because of racism. Some have to do with pathologies within the black community, 74% of African-American children are born out of wedlock. And a significant percentage of that, I think about 70% of that, is causally linked to poverty. So it's not white people who are going into black neighborhoods and impregnating black women. When you have 74% of African-American kids born out of wedlock, the single mothers who are poor, and the absence of fathers, and you can link, you can make a correlative, cor correlative link between those statistics and the likelihood, and not just the likelihood, the actual occurrence of crimes and me mental health issues and all sorts of problems that occur from children born in those single homes, single family homes. Um, these, these issues have to be addressed and these are part of the, the phenomenon that cause that causes disparities and people don't really look deeply at the underlying causes. They look at the disparities themselves and say, it must be because of racism. It must be because of residual effects of slavery and therefore we're still oppressed. Well, you're, uh, <clears throat> you're teeing up another question I'm gonna ask here <clears throat> downstream, but uh, you know, you're talking about disparities, uh, your colleague uh, and scholar Thomas Sowell has written extensively on mm -hmm. the factors that lead to disparities economically, socially, politically. And he, he submits that it has little to do with racism mm -hmm. per se. Uh, so he, he reinforces what you're saying. Yes. Now in your latest book, Professor Hill, you claim our constitution is scientific and political. I, I was really excited to see that because you know i've i have felt the same way mm -hmm. uh i have two questions regarding this claim first what do you mean by scientific and political and then when you're done with that i'll follow up with another question well by scientific i mean that for the first time in human history the founding fathers got something a set of individuals got something right they got human nature right they got the fact that man is a conceptual being who needs reason as his basic tool of survival to function in the world, that he's a, that he, that he's a rational creature, that, as Aristotle said, that's our defining characteristic, and that he needs a corresponding milieu, a corresponding environment in which to transplant himself or to, trans, or to um, ensconce himself in order to flourish as a rational human being, that liberty and freedom are the, ne are the necessary conditions, absolutely vital conditions for human beings being possessed of the nature as they have to flourish. If you look historically at various other civilizations, there'd been a misperception of human nature. And there certainly had been under feudalism, under 
authoritarianism under sort of hereditary monarchy and the divine right rule of rule of kings and queens. Um, a mismatch between the the true nature of of man and the proper Locke realized this the proper political environment that he or she the individual needs to flourish as a human being so the founding fathers created what i call an epistemological revolution in the fact that they really understood the nature of man as a conceptual being that reason requires an environment of complete freedom where other people do not and the state does not interfere with the trial and error and the conceptions of good lives that you have to go through in order to find your true need your true identity as a as a personal human being that you have to sort of make mistakes and that you have to recover from those mistakes that human beings are not infallible and that the state cannot have a coercive monopoly on truth that you have to leave people so long as they don't sort of transgress on the individual rights of other persons to carve out a conception of the good for themselves. Um, the United States, I think, was the first country that prioritized the right over the good. That is, justice will prevail, but it will remain sort of agnostic for the most part on the conception of the good life that people create for themselves because of the sovereignty. And again, this is something else that they got right about human nature. Human beings by nature are sovereign, autonomous beings when they reach conceptual and cognitive maturity who have the right to make judgments about their lives. That is, again, being rational creatures, we have to make judgments on behalf of our lives. Those judgments inform our choices, and those choices lead to certain actions that determine our destiny and our fate. And they founded a constitutional republic that was the best environment in which the human being could matriculate as a free person, as he or she ought to matriculate and not have a state mandate a conception of the good life. I mean, this was an imperfect process, but not mandate the good life because the state has no more a coercive monopoly on truth as does the average citizen. So that's what I mean by it's, it's scientific in the sense that it really did get human nature right mm. and then find the correct political environment that was conducive, not inimical, but conducive to the expression of that human nature in a way that brought about not just survival, but as Aristotle would call it, flourishing and thriving. And, in, and yeah. You know, to me, that that is awesome. Uh, a lot of times, you know, people don't realize that the Constitution is a political document. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it codifies a political system that you're describing to allow the human individual to flourish, mm -hmm. to create, uh, to produce, which leads me to the second related question. So I agree the Constitution is a political document. So if the Constitution is political, especially in a way that promotes American values, mm -hmm. the political system that you just talked about, then what is your sense regarding the reluctance of retired senior military officers, such as three and four stars, their reluctance to speak out against the current anti-America movement 
represented by Black Lives Matter in the 1619 Project? I know it's a very loaded question. I know, you know, idea pathogens are, which there are a lot of idea pathogens that are going around and they are infecting us. I'm going to give you a philosophical answer, Dr. Scott. I'm going to say that we live in an age of radical moral relativism in which reason, I've been a professor now for 25 years, so I've, I've seen the trajectory of this play itself out, where reason and logic are criminalized, are classified as the creation of white supremacist European um, thinkers who used it as a way to marginalize and weaponize themselves against people of color, where thinking and the idea of objectivity and of an objective universe are thought to be false creations, again, of white racists. So there, we live in a milieu in which relativism runs amok, where every single person thinks that he can elevate his sophomoric high school opinion to the level of human knowledge and not get challenged. And every single village idiot, uninformed village idiot, who advances a view, going back to the 1980s self-esteem movement, is made to feel that his or her opinion is just as good as the expert, as the person who has, through years of study and practice exercise, some kind of efficacy in his or her field. So I think a lot of these officers are just not equipped with the skills because to, to, to contest what they're being, what, what's being enforced upon them because reason and logic are the means that we use to adjudicate among competing truth claims. And if you live in a world that says reason and logic are useless, that they're racist, and increasingly feelings take primacy and ascendancy over logic and reason and what counts as the fundamental thing that is going to adjudicate a truth claim is the depth of my feelings versus the the the, the greater depth of your feelings people are left in a state of paralysis but there's more to it than that i think that we're going through a period in history where people are conceptually just very, very confused. And they think they want to be on the right side of history. That is, we, there are so many changes. And this is why I think, you know, we could be heading towards fascism because I think social changes have got to be slow and incremental. These changes are occurring so rapidly by a bunch of critical race theory, leftist Marxists, I call them thugs really, who really, really want to change the political DNA of this country. And it's a kind of social eugenics movement to re-socialize the sensibilities of the military, to have them question the purpose of what is even called a term I despise vehemently, the military industry complex, because that has a very pejorative um, meaning affixed to it. And so the military right now is being re-socialized. It's being, it's being feminized. It's being the, the, the whole concept of masculinity and, um, and male leadership and the traditional ways of approaching leadership and the traditional ways of, of approaching masculine leadership are being characterized as being toxic. 
So men themselves are, there's a crisis in masculinity, first of all. And so men themselves divested of any means of protecting their own actions, ensconced in a very toxic environment in which anything that they do is, is questionable. And then when I talked about America phobia, where the United States itself is positioned as, a, 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 I wrote an article called Genocide, Stolen Land and Other Lies About America, where America is now positioned as um, a crime scene, that America itself is an illegal country. Um, we have um, we have a set of individuals who are just bereft. They are completely helpless in terms of issuing rejoinders or dissent. Because if they do, especially under this well under this administration, they will be punished. They will be ostracized slowly but surely by these kind of woke supremacists and these these critical race theorists. So I think there are a lot of good men and women in the military who privately are horrified at what is being thrust upon them, but are also equally terrified at going against what is being mainstreamed, um, which is something quite psychotic and quite nefarious and quite poisonous because they can be canceled <clears throat> because cancel culture, Dr. Scott, is something very, very real. And if they speak out and dare to be overtly patriotic um, and defend their country and their country's right to exist and to pursue the actions that it pursues across the world, um, that they could be canceled. And so we are terrorizing our military with new ideologies and new modes of socialization. That's very, very, very dangerous uh, for the national security of this country. What I know in your, your book, you, you recognize the role that our Judeo-Christian tradition played in shaping America. Uh, and it's, it's kind of fortuitous that you just described what you did. Because I, I pulled this quote from a 1950 book written by Joseph, Joseph Schumpeter. The title of the book was Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. And here's in the prologue. It's a lengthy quote, but bear with me because I, I, I think it reinforces what you're saying. In one important sense, Marxism is a religion. To the believer, it presents first a system of ultimate ends that embody the meaning of life and are absolute standards by which to judge events and actions. And secondly, a guide to those ends, which implies a plan of salvation and the indication of the evil from which mankind or chosen section of mankind is to be saved. We may specify still further, Marxist socialism also belongs to that subgroup which promises paradise on this side of the grave. The religious quality of Marxism also explains a characteristic attitude of the orthodox Marxist toward opponents. To him, as to any believer in a faith, the opponent is not merely in error, but in sin. Dissent is disapproved of not only intellectually, but morally. There cannot be any excuse for it since the message has been revealed. It's a mm. very powerful observation by Schumpeter in 1950. Indeed. And so Indeed. 15 years later, 
we see the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And then eight years later, the 1972 Equal Employment Opportunity Act and corresponding commission. They were designed to make discrimination illegal. Now, in addition to the equal employment opportunity structure, we have diversity, equity, and inclusion officers throughout the entire federal government, mm -hmm. universities, and other institutions. Arguably, the diversity, equity, and inclusion structure is fueled by Marxist-related critical race theory. Does this make sense to you? And what is going on here? Well, it it makes it's it makes sense in one respect, given their goals and their agenda. Yes, um, because critical race you have to, one has to remember that critical race theorists and these diversity, equity, and inclusion um, hordes are against the concept of equality. They think that equality is simply a way of reinforcing white supremacy and um, because it involves, among other things, a colorblind society, it involves treating all persons equally. And they argue that it is discriminatory to treat people who are unequal equally. So it makes sense, given their goals, that equity, which is what they're about, which is, again, people should realize that equity means equality of outcomes, legislating equality of outcomes. And that is a very, very dangerous idea for two reasons. One, first of all, our country was not founded on economic equality or equality of outcomes. It was founded on political equality. Um, and the idea that we can legislate equal outcomes <clears throat> is a pure malarkey because we're not all equal. We're equal in terms of equal, we're equal before the law and should be treated equal before, before the law. But metaphysically speaking, we're not equal. We're not all equally intelligent. We're not all equal. I don't have the athletic prowess as my Jamaican countryman, Usain Bolt, who's still the fastest man in the world. I don't have the athletic prowess of Serena Williams, a magnificent tennis player. I don't, I'm not the smartest person in the world. I, there are people who are 15, 100 times more smarter than I am. Uh, we're not equal in moral stature. And we have, people have to realize that equality of outcomes is often the result also of the values that we hold. And you cannot redistribute values. How do you redistribute values among people when people hold different values? And so it, it makes sense in one respect, but this is what socialists and communists really, really want. They want everyone equally shabby. They want to legislate equal outcomes by um, getting away from the fact that uh, by abolishing, um, uh, by not questioning unequal performance. And um, this is something that most people on hearing equal outcomes think, well, what's, that's, what's wrong with that? I mean, wouldn't you want a society in which economic equality is a norm? And when you explain to them what would have to take place, that is, you would have to penalize the intelligent, you would have to penalize the productive at, at the expense 
you'd have to reward the non-productive at the expense of the productive. You'd have to penalize people for their virtues. Um, you would have to expropriate the wealth of the productive man and woman and give it to the unearned uh, to bring him or her up to the standard of, of, of the productive man. And you would have to, in some sense, criminalize intelligence and virtue and productivity and perseverance and grit and honor, all the things that produce net outcomes. Uh, it doesn't seem like an attractive, it doesn't seem like an attractive agenda after all, but this is what they're really, this is what they're after. This is why Ocasio-Cortez can say, you know, let's abolish billionaires um, because she, she realizes that billionaires are billionaires, not most of them, not because of government handouts, but because they have worked very, very hard. They've exercised their intelligence. They've conjoined their reason with their labor. And um, she wants to expropriate that. And, 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 and my question would be, what determines your fair right to someone else's income? I mean, what criteria, what algorithm are you going to use? So in one sense, it makes sense, given their agenda, to bring us all into a socialist, um, under a socialist regime. It does make sense. Well, we don't have time to <clears throat> get into Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. I'm sure you've read. Oh, yes. Uh, and chapter five on the Grand Inquisitor, where he lectures Jesus Christ yes. that he failed, that people don't know how to exercise their liberty, their freedom. Right. Anyway, it's it's a powerful passage, but uh, Professor Hill, you you obviously have given tremendous thought to the issues that affect us today, and now you remember 1776 Unites, and I'm very mm -hmm. impressed with that organization, uh, mm -hmm. Robert Woodson, yeah. Woodson Center. Uh, what what do you hope to accomplish through this organization? It's a it's a magnificent organization, and what I hope to accomplish is. Um, it's two. It's twofold. Um, my goal one is to continue, just offering inspiration to people who, you know, former gang members, people who are who have paid their paid their price in prison to, sh to ostensibly show them that this is America where you you can get a second chance. This is by nature Americans are not punitive people or retributive people. They're actually quite forgiving. And to show that the country is a place where um, you can start over. And the Woodson Center is devoted to, among other things, targeting people on a grassroots level who provide solutions to people who have done wrong and have paid for their crimes and want a second chance to um, redeem themselves in the eyes of society and to give back. Um, but I'm primarily a, a public I'm primarily a, a scholar and an intellectual, and so my goal also is to undertake the second goal of the 1776 project, which is to question the 1619 project and to question the way that American history has been presented to kids, primarily in K through 12, this kind of revisionism that the 1619 project is doing. What I hope to accomplish is to defend the American dream is to divest as best I can people of their sense of America phobia 
and to continue showing in some sense that America is not a perfect place, but that America is a self-regenerative country that is always in a sense of self-renewal by exposing the way that the left has in some sense taken things that are that have been facts about America. I mean, blacks have been mistreated in this country. Slavery was horrific, um, but have been stuck in the past and have used the past as um, something that is codified and ossified and projected it as still operative in the present. And I want to show in my work how far we have come in terms of moral progress. That's part of my project at the 1776. Well, I, I applaud your effort because, you know, there's so much talk about what's wrong with America, but very little in terms of trying to define the problem and then yes. pursue solutions. And you're doing that with 1776 Unites. Now, you're also affiliated with the David Horowitz Freedom Center. And before you respond, <clears throat> I happen to know that David Horowitz was part of the 60s leftist radicals. His parents were both uh, card-carrying members of the Communist Party. Uh, he, he traveled with that crowd until all of a sudden he realized that this was not good. Mm -hmm. and, and he had a conversion. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and like most people that go through conversions, uh, he became somewhat of an evangelical in terms of pushing what he believed was true. Mm -hmm. true American values and uh, a lot of what we've talked about today. So what what does the Freedom Center stand for and what are you trying to accomplish there? I think the Freedom Center primarily stands for um, a, a radically patriotic pro-America um, philosophy, advocating a pro-American philosophy, but more importantly, exposing some of the shibboleths that the far left um, has been promulgating into the public imaginary that you don't find in the mainstream media, right? So the far left um, is really, really quite instrumental in rebranding this country in a particular way that is quite, well, it's not just antipodal to the founding and the spirit of America, but it attempts in so many ways to re-socialize the sensibilities of young people in ways that are very, very different from the values of their parents. So I think the, part of what the Freedom Center wants to do is to, is to expose the, what Horowitz calls the totalitarian left and how it operates quite often by stealth. And so they have a number of invest, investigative journalists there who are quite brilliant in exposing everything from what's going on in K through 12 to what's going on in the halls of Congress that the average American probably wouldn't be privy to. Um, and I want, I do a lot of book, book reviews. So I, I write a lot of articles on current events from everything from foreign policy to a lot of articles on Israel. Um, I also write a lot of book reviews. I, I want to bring or Americans to raise the literacy standards. So I do a lot of book reviews as well. And, um, and to just to continue to reach non-conservatives, um, if I can, reasonable liberals or reasonable people who are maybe left of center who um, can still be reached. I, I, I have 
great faith in America and the American people that some of them are not just willfully ignorant, but are need a little bit of persuasion. And um, so I see myself as a public intellectual at the Horowitz Center, um, at the Freedom Center, just advancing the cause of freedom, of liberty, especially of capitalism and, um, and, the, and the, the moral dimensions of capitalism, which I think needs to be advanced. Uh, a lot of my articles I approach from a very ethical and moral standpoint and not just from the perspective of what's politically expedient or um, what's, what's, what makes economic sense, but from a moral, because I'm, I'm an ethicist first and foremost and a political theorist second, secondary. So I tend to see things ethically and more in a moralistic way. Well, I was going to ask you if you're optimistic or pessimistic, but I can tell in the enthusiasm of your projects that you're optimistic about the future. And you're not hiding out in an ivory tower, just writing about things. You're writing about it, analyzing, and you're on the playing field uh, out there making a difference. I'm trying to. Uh, so how do people learn more about Professor Hill and what you're doing? Well, they can find my books on Amazon. They can also follow me on Twitter at, um, at Jason D. Hill 6. I am very active on Twitter and, um, and I'm very active on my Facebook at Dr. J at Dr. Jason D. Hill at, at Hill 1913 um, on Facebook. And um, I also have a website, um, jasondamianhill.com, my full name. My middle name is D-A-M-I-A-N. So it's jasondamianhill.com. And um, I'm going to be starting, beginning, I think, next week, a podcast on Substack um, called Leading in the Midst of Chaos, um, American Man America's New Manifest Destiny. I'm writing a book on America's New Manifest Destiny and what that would look like. Great. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you've got a, a major voice, Professor Hill. Thank you. And it's been an honor having you on this program. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott.